Hey everyone, this is David from the Think Leaders team. We had a really exciting show today. We were talking all about how AI is augmenting human intelligence, getting into AI for good, ethics of AI, and also data use. A frequent conversation on this show. So we brought on Jason Tan, who is the co-founder and CEO of SIFT. And we also had Karina Grosheva, who is the founder and CEO of Decatum. Awesome conversation that we had. Happy listening. Hey, everyone. This is David. Welcome to the IBM Think Leaders podcast. Really excited today to have on Jason Tan and also Karina Grosheva. Welcome to IBM Think Leaders. Hey. Thanks, Dave. I'm All excited right. to be here. So, Jason, if we wouldn't mind... Could you tell us a little bit more about your background, some of your work with SIFT? Sure. So uh, my background is in computer science. I graduated from the University of Washington with a computer science degree. Worked as a software engineer for a couple different startups in Seattle. And then moved down to San Francisco in 2011 to start SIFT. Mm-hmm. And our mission is really to help everyone trust the internet. And we're doing that by first fighting fraud online. So stolen credit cards, fake accounts, account takeover, content spam and scams. We're helping businesses apply machine learning and artificial intelligence to solve these problems at scale in real time in a very accurate way. Machine learning comes up a lot on this this podcast. Do you still find that there's a lot of misconception about what machine learning is and how it's being applied. Love to kind of hear you expand on that a little bit. You know, over the last decade, we've seen an explosion in the awareness of machine learning, but maybe less so the adoption. I think that gap is where things get a little interesting. There's a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and there's a lot of noise in the market, whichever vertical you're going into. And so as a buyer of software, I think it's important to educate yourself and understand the nuances of the different types of machine learning, the different qualities of machine learning, and make sure that you're trying to solve a problem in a meaningful way rather than having a hammer that where, where everything looks <laughs> like a nail. So Karina, tell me a little bit more about Takedum. I have a combined career of private sector and public sector. So my last seven years were in public sector. I was in United Nations working in different countries, focusing on inclusive business primarily. And before that, I was in Accenture where I was introduced in the early beginnings of machine learnings and robotic process automation. A couple of years ago, I had the idea to combine the growing demand of the data required to train machine learning and artificial Mm -hmm. intelligence with the massive youth unemployment that has been growing in sub-Saharan Africa, in Middle East. So currently, my social enterprise, Takadam, is focusing on employing youth to work on image annotation and data tagging to build deep learning models that are performing well. One of the reasons why we wanted to bring both of you on today's show is about this kind of broader concept of AI augmenting human intelligence. So when you say a phrase like that, I'd be interested to hear what that means to both of you. How is AI augmenting human intelligence? AI is like training a child. And let's say in a span of 70, 80 years of lifespan, we are like training five-year-old child at the moment. (laughs) 
And as much as some companies claim that uh, they have very good artificial intelligence mm -hmm. implemented, we're still at that stage, which means that we're still inputting a lot of human intelligence into training our mm -hmm. AI. And it may get reversed in the future where we actually benefit more from AI than what's now, but we're still not there. But something interesting happening, and I think like this is a direction. So Takadam is also part of the human in the loop movement. Mm -hmm. So it's not just training artificial intelligence, it's also being on the other edge where you implement the image recognition or any other deep learning technologies. What's happened is the humans eventually would be the ones that providing feedback. It also brings the concept of work of the future. So the whole concept of how we work will change. Mm -hmm medical doctors will no longer will be looking at the results of the reports or x-ray scans. What instead they would do, they would respond to what this predictive and recognition technology delivered. And then in the loop, they will provide a feedback again about how AI worked, which they continue training it okay. over, over time. And <clears throat> it applies to any profession, essentially. What are the professions that you think are going to be most impacted in a positive way by the application of AI? So, Sakrina, you, you just mentioned kind of the, the doctor scenario. That's obviously one that, that usually gets a lot of media attention when it detects early onset of you know some type of disease. Uh, but do you think there's other areas that maybe are yeah, not mean, as widely discussed? I think one interesting example is our mm -hmm. industry, where a lot of people don't really know the world of risk and risk management, but... We help these risk teams that companies like Airbnb or Twitter or Twilio are employing to manually review suspicious activity. And these decisions require a high degree of accuracy. Yeah. And artificial intelligence has been tremendous in augmenting that accuracy and helps these humans make these decisions more quickly and spend less time on cases of fraud that are very obviously fraud. Mm. And instead, they can focus their time and energy on the edge cases or the gray area that requires more human intervention. But a big uh, risk for a lot of companies right now is ransomware, right? Typically exploiting some vulnerable individual who's opening up an email oftentimes. But we've also seen ransomware still on the rise, even with all this discussion. So, Jason, are you, are you seeing anything like positive trend-wise to reduce that? I mean, unfortunately, I don't have a good answer here or a hopeful answer mm -hmm. because from my own experience, I'm seeing all the leading indicators go in the wrong direction. No, no. Data breaches all right. are at an all-time high, increasing frequency and magnitude, phishing attacks, spam, scams, etc. I think, you know, we have to believe and embrace that the world is just getting started in its transformation from offline to online. Mm -hmm. And we are woefully underprepared as a society for that digital transformation. We need to start really investing in digital literacy and mm -hmm. educating everyone on how the internet works, how artificial intelligence works, how basic technology works. Because if that's what we're going to be using in our day-to-day, -day, mostly we should know how it operates. So how how would you propose or how do you imagine we could get greater education for digital literacy for just general adults? Because digital literacy certainly is happening at a high school level, but it seems to be more of a problem throughout generations. So how would you, Karina, do you have any ideas or, or Jason about how can we increase that? Uh, the whole idea of bringing more diversity into AI and machine learning 
outsourcing data training to more places outside of the U.S. also helps to educate young people and people involved in training AI to understand how data works and basic concept of technology and data science concepts, Mm -hmm. but also brings a lot of diversity into the actual process here into companies that are using that service. So I'm curious, and then Karina, from your background with more of a global lens, do you see the reaction to AI's impact being dramatically different throughout the the world? So for example, here we are sitting in in Manhattan, that might influence our lens of how we're we're seeing AI and how it can be leveraged. Do you kind of notice drastically different perspectives about, okay, here's where AI is being applied. Here's what it's going to do. So the concept starts with how we build the technology. So in the past, the software was developed by developers. Now the deep learning technologies include data loop in it. So that means that the semantic value of the data that goes into machine learning model defines what it would recognize and how would it react to things and how our artificial intelligence models would function. Which means if we are building image recognition technology to, let's say, identify the threat in the crowd and we bring certain group of people to define that this is a threat and this is not, this is, of course, matters. So the idea that we bring more diversity into the data and training the data is where we need to be investing it and making sure that it's not all done in Silicon Valley or a couple other, you know, uh, shops in the the globe, but but it should be spread all over. And to add to that, I think there's a lot of talk and headlines around, you know, bias and AI. And you've seen systems that are racist and homophobic, whatever it is, which is unfortunate. You know, I think if you take a closer look under the hood, it is often reflecting the reality of what's happening offline. And then as we build these systems, as we feed data, as we have humans in the loop, those systems are inherently unequal, unjust. And so we can't aim to fix bias in AI until we take a hard look in the mirror and improve the reality of what's around us. Or at least diversify the the feed, diversify the input. So I'd be curious from both of your experiences of what, you know, if you're talking about the future of work, AI on one hand, you can say, okay, well, we can leverage this to augment human intelligence. This is going to lead to all these jobs that we can't even imagine because they don't exist yet. It's it's going to be a positive disruption. But then the flip side is the Terminator scenario that, that comes up a lot where people think that it's going to eliminate more than it, it creates. So I'd be curious of where both of you kind of stand on that, but also just your own experiences and, and insight you might have into that. What's surprising is that the recent trends show complete transformation of jobs. So it's not eliminating or creating a new jobs. So what's happening now is that the jobs that never existed now on the rise that relates to data processing, machine learning engineers, data scientists, but also some of the jobs, of course, would require less talent. That's inevitable. It's It's been happening in any revolution, an industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. So now we are in fourth industrial revolution, they call it, or a digital transformation. So that's where we're going. But are, do you think... We're not threatened. <laughs> I don't think that there's a threat. Are we prepared, though, to handle this? Or is there going to be going to be a need to reskill yeah, you know, the I, workforce? I would, I would say yes. I mean, I, I would just take the obvious example of trucking, mm-hmm. right? If we can truly achieve self-driving trucks, which seems like it's not too far in the distant future, 
what happens to these you know, 2 million plus truckers around yeah. the country. We do need to find pathways for them to graduate into other fields. This is a societal thing that we need to start thinking about and laying out the groundwork for, because this is unlike any other transformation we've ever seen. It's happening faster than we realized at a mm-hmm. scale bigger than we ever imagined. And I think it's going to hit us like a sledgehammer if we're not prepared for it. Are you seeing anything both on your ends about changes in, in data collection or, you know, what data you think is most valuable? Because obviously that's, uh, you know, data collection has been a very hot topic. Yeah, I, mean, I would just say, I think often for a lot of businesses, they think that they need to start just applying machine learning to whatever problem exists. And in my experience, to really get the most out of a machine learning system, having the right infrastructure so that you can really work on data sets at scale in terms of, you know, storing and loading and extracting quickly and efficiently is highly underestimated and undervalued. Because if you hire all these very expensive data scientists and sort of statistically minded engineers, but they don't have the tooling to be able to go to town and ask questions of their data so they can help you solve the problems that you want to solve. I think you're going to be upside down in your economics on on your business. And so if you're thinking about applying this seriously, really understand what's the problem that I want to solve and do I have the right core infrastructure in place so that I can empower these statistically minded folks to do their best work. Ground truth data, which is where it could be structured or unstructured, but what most likely happening is a lot of unstructured data is coming from primary resource collection, as you said, like from people communicating or people using their financials Mm -hmm. in a certain way. So this is the data that normally has been not used in decision making and which is it becoming new alternative ways to understand what's really happening on the ground. So, Karina, a lot of your work focuses also on the kind of ethical AI movement, which I imagine dovetails with data collection, especially in a post-GDPR world. What issues are you kind of seeing around that, especially around how data might be collected in different different countries worldwide? Are, are you seeing any changes with how people are going about collecting um, data? Well, I actually believe that the data brings positive opportunities positive impact mostly. I do not want to be in a situation that we wouldn't be able to use, let's say, aggregated data on a credit card transactions because it informs sometimes our decision-making, how governments can respond better to the crisis or uh, how to better design policies, let's say. So having access to this data is still very, very valid. The idea is not to, of course, uh, share the personal data, which is what GDPR is about. It shouldn't preclude public sector, which is where it comes from. Like, we don't want to give our government's data, yeah, right? right? Which is where the whole movement starts with. But at the same time, this data is actually informing the governments and public sector, United Nations, NGOs, how to respond better to crisis and uh, find better solutions. So we should find a way to still use this unstructured data, alternative data, satellite data, which, you know, people consider it as spying on what they're doing and it's not their business, but we should be using this data in order to create better solutions for sustainable development. Just make sure that we protect the, the privacy of certain yeah. individuals. It's a wild west right now in the internet age. We still are very much in the early innings of figuring out how to regulate this thing that transcends mm. all the bar- borders boundaries, and there's yeah. no boundaries on the internet. That was part of the egalitarian nature of it. 
fraud, for example, like if you shoplifted in a store in Manhattan right now, you would get arrested. But online, law enforcement doesn't care unless it's millions of dollars at stake, at least. Mm. And so how does that work when it's cross-border, if you're doing fraud from a different country? You know, we, we haven't figured out these big questions that we need to start figuring out because it's, it's a bit of a wild west right now. So do you think there's going to be greater collaboration on a country by country level? I think right now there is very little collaboration. I think right now it is the opposite. Even within the United States, we have California leading the way with it, which is awesome. But then each other state is trying to develop its own privacy legislation, which doesn't make sense to me. I think the internet should have one governing body that kind of represents it globally and has, you know, a shared set of rules and regulations. But right now it's the opposite. It's going to be very fragmented, which I think, defeats kind of the purpose of the internet in the first place. You mentioned California's new privacy law, which went into effect, right, January 1st, 2020. Do you see that leading to some type of national privacy law for I sure hope the so. U.S.? I, I sure hope so. I'm, I'm, there's a, definitely a bunch of companies, ours, ourselves included, that are wanting for, for this. We want to be regulated. We don't want that regulation to be insensible and fragmented. I think it should be a coherent and clear and unified strategy. Jason, with your company, SIFT, one thing that really kind of caught my attention looking looking at SIFT was the phrase that you utilize, dynamic friction. Love to kind of hear an expansion on that. What, what is dynamic friction? Right now, the default user experience for most of us shopping online or interacting with our favorite service is one of guilty until proven innocent. Right, We have to re-enter the password that we just typed in 20 minutes ago. We have to pull out our phone to do two-factor authentication. We have to click on a bunch of images that, to prove that we're not a robot. This is not how we believe at SIF the internet should work. Right. We believe it should be innocent until proven guilty. And so the concept of dynamic friction is where a business would be able to, because it can accurately assess risk in real time, dynamically change the friction introduced at every step of the user journey based on the level of risk present. So if someone's very risky, okay, add those extra gates and verification and security checks. If not, let them go right through. And this is going to be even more important as everything moves to a mobile first world because our patience as consumers is even less forgiving and there's less screen real estate to type on. We need to make things easy and fast and safe for all. <laughs> I like that idea, right? I always personally find it very offensive that I need to prove that I'm not a robot. I said, well, my God, what, yeah. I need to, to showcase that I'm not a robot, right? This is like Salem witch trials or and, something And this like is that. why, I mean, our mission at SIFT is to help everyone trust the internet. You know, we're really concerned that right now, by default, we don't trust the internet and the internet doesn't trust us. That's kind of how things work today. We raise our children to be very <laughs> skeptical of what they read, who they interact with, etc. We think this is not going to accomplish and unlock the fullest potential of the internet if we don't all trust and believe in it. And so how can we help everyone get to the other side? I like that. So that's a good way to, uh, to end our time together. So Jason, Karina, thank you both for, for coming in on IBM Think Leaders. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, we really appreciate you listening to IBM Think Leaders podcast. Got a little ask for you. Love to, to share the word. So find a friend, tell them all about IBM Think Leaders podcast and how we're dealing with the evolution of AI. Really appreciate you listening.